0: Good evening. It's good to be back with you. If you weren't here, I had the opportunity to speak to you guys uh, last August. So hard to believe getting up on a year. Um, A little different format um, that we're discussing tonight. But I was very excited when Jason asked me, I think back in March, that you guys were planning on doing this because I think this is something we don't talk about enough. Um, What's going to happen... When I die, Uh, that can be a scary question. It can be a a scary thing to think about. You can probably remember the first time you kind of started trying to figure out, what does it mean when I die? I I actually remember this. I was about five years old, and uh, we were living in Cody, Wyoming. We had just recently lived there. I don't know what it was that sparked this on in me. Maybe something on TV, or maybe someone had died. And I remember being in the kitchen and asking my dad, well, what happens when I die? Where do I go? Like I just go away for a little while and then come back? And, and you might remember that time for, for, for you when that happened. When, when you started trying to reason, what's going to happen when I die? And, and what we're talking about tonight, um, specifically tonight, we're going to be discussing wills. And you have the opportunity in a will to kind of decide with your property what's going to happen when you die. And uh, I hope this will be beneficial to you. Next week we're going to talk about trusts and power of attorneys and survivorship deeds and other things you can do. But we're going to spend, uh, as far as an individual topic, the most time on wills. J- just a, a few things about myself. Like uh, Jason said, uh, we are in Donaldsonville. I'm, I'm lucky to have Megan here with me tonight. She didn't get to come uh, when I came in August, but but glad to have her here. Uh, just think the world of, of Jason and Bethany and their family, and, and wish we lived closer so we could just spend even more time together. I know you guys are very blessed uh, to have them here. Um, I would not say that I am an expert by any means, but when it comes to these uh, topics as far as will and estates, I'd like to maybe get there one day. Um, but, but one thing that I, I want to give to you real quick is some of my experience in this. I had the opportunity when I was at Fried Hardeman University in uh, Henderson, Tennessee, in college to work for a pretty well-known Wills and Estates attorney, John Talbot, a Church of Christ guy, a part-time professor at Freed Hardeman. I got to spend about three years at his feet, and and I learned some neat things from him. He is the epitome of of what you would expect in, in a Christian attorney. If he's got a woman an hour and a half away, older, can't come to his office, he will drive out to her house, not charge her any extra write up her will, go back to his office, check it, type it up, take it back to her. I used to get to go with him on trips like this and witness it. And so I got some really good training from him. I then had the opportunity to intern for my uncle in Montana that has a law firm. And he doesn't specialize necessarily in wills and estates. He does some of them. He does more trusts, and we'll talk about that next week. And he's made a good name for himself. He has some big... You maybe have heard of a guy named Ted Turner, living in Georgia. He is one of Ted Turner's attorneys in Montana, and I got to work on some of Ted Turner's stuff and meet him. And then I got to work for a federal judge in um, Alabama through law school that he's the guy that when you're fighting over a will or a trust, he's the judge you go before. So I got to learn some neat things from him. And then for the last year and a half, I've been trying to to figure it all out, how to help my own clients. So a little bit of experience. But, but the first thing I wanted to t- really talk about is the biblical aspect of estate planning. I don't think we typically think about that there, that there is some biblical aspect to this. I want you to turn to Genesis 48 and 49. And, and it doesn't specifically say here that this is Jacob's will, but, but I think that's what we have going on here. In, in Genesis 48, you might remember the story here. Jacob is getting old. He's losing his eyesight. He's about to die. And it's important in this time in this day and age that he would pass on his blessing. So Joseph brings to Jacob his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And, and we all know, I know, Uh, Jason has definitely discussed this with you before, that in that day and age, there was a a way you did things. And it was oldest over the youngest, rich over the poor, male over female. And and that kind of starts to change for the first time here. When Jacob does what he does here, when Jacob goes to put his right hand on Manasseh, which would have happened Every time a blessing would have been passed down to this point, and his left hand on Ephraim's head, he switches his hands. And this was so foreign in this time that you just did not do this, you did not bless the youngest, that Joseph thinks Jacob's losing his mind. He can't see, he's so old, and and Joseph gets irate because Joseph still sees things the way culture sees them. And he tries to, to straighten out Jacob's hands. But Jacob, once again, puts his right hand on Ephraim's head, his left hand on Manasseh's, and he gives his blessing to Ephraim. And and there's a lot bigger lesson, a lot bigger sermon, a lot bigger story that can be taken from this passage. But we also then see, when you turn on to to Genesis 49, it's entitled, Jacob Blessing His Sons, And he kind of lays out his will for each individual son. We then see in Genesis 50, we see the will of Joseph. If you look down at verse 22, it says, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Manasseh, Macher, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. And I think I actually talked about Joseph when I came in August, and so I'm not going to get into this completely, but we see here Joseph is saying, when I die, I want you to take my bones with you. A- and the point of this was he wanted it to be known this world wasn't his home. He lived for something bigger than himself. But what we see going on here is what a will does. He instructed, when I die, carry my bones with you had he not made that instruction what would have happened was he died as what a big wig Egyptian right so had he not made this instruction you and I could go to Egypt today and there would probably be a pyramid of Joseph but because of this instruction things after he died Completely changed. And then I just briefly want us to turn over to Matthew 28. And, you know, we call it the Great Commission. I, for some time, have called it Jesus' last will and testament. And this was so important to Jesus that are they not only the last recorded words of Jesus on this earth, he comes back from the dead to give his will. And this is what it is. We we know this passage very well. When the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, when he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And Jesus comes back and says these things. This is what's important. These are the things that I want to make sure, if you don't remember anything else I taught on this earth, remember this. Carry this on. As you go about your life, do these things. And then I think there's an aspect when we look at what it means to live in the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, we we know this verse probably very well too in verses 22 through 25. But it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And you might be thinking, well, where is he going with this? That doesn't say anything about your last will and testament. Well, I believe, and and having done this on my own now for a year and a half, having seen a lot of other situations with attorneys I've helped, when you don't have a will, when you don't have things set up and figured out for your family when you die, you're not living according to the fruit of the Spirit. Because faithfulness and joy and kindness and all of these things, peacefulness, don't come out of leaving a mess for people to figure out once you're dead. Like I tell people all the time, in, in the big scheme of things, you're doing this more for your family and your friends and your loved ones than you are yourself, because when you die, you're gone. Your debt and all those things, those are now somebody else's issues. And I I personally believe as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't really be living in the fruit of the Spirit if you're willing to just leave this hassle to somebody else. What kind of legacy are you leaving? And then Jason's probably more qualified to talk about some of these things that I am but it's it's pretty hard to grieve when there's a mess to deal with Jason can probably walk you through some of these steps like I said better than I can but there's five pretty known steps of grief the first is denial and isolation the second is anger the third is is bargaining you're trying to rationalize you're trying to, to figure it all out the fourth is depression and despair. And then finally, hopefully, we, we, we get to acceptance. And, and for different people, this takes different amount of time. You might spend a lot of time in step one. You might get through step one pretty quick, but then you spend years in step two or step three. And when you die, hopefully you're living a life in which you're touching a lot of people. Hopefully you're reaching out to people and you're encouraging people and and you're going to leave an impact on this world. And when you die, it's going to leave a void. That that would be my hope for every one of you. And my hope would be you're going to give people the time, your loved ones, your family, your friends, to work through the grief and not have to put the grief aside because there's so much with, your estate that they've got to be figuring out. One of the worst things, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, one of the worst things I think I deal with is a a new widow that has to spend a lot of time in my office and having to call insurance companies and pay out all this money to put notices in the newspaper to try to get things figured out, and she just can't be at home dealing with the loss of her loved one dying of 40 years. That's a really sad thing, and my hope is that that through the end of this, I I will convince you the importance of doing this. So, I real quick, we were kind of playing with the slides, so you might have seen this. If if you saw this statistic, I don't want you to guess, because I do have a prize for the person that gets closest, but can someone guess, let's throw out some numbers, of how many Americans, how many adult Americans do not have a will? Any any guesses, percentages? Seventy-five percent. Anybody else? Eighty. Sixty-five. Fifty. Ninety. It's fifty-five. So you were you were pretty. So we're gonna give you a Baldwin attorney at law (laughs) pen. But fifty-five and. I'm glad it's not some of those other numbers of 85 or 90. I, I guess that would be good for business, but that we'd be living in a very unprepared um, society. But 55% of adult Americans don't have a will. 68% of adult African Americans don't have a will. 62% of adults don't have a power of attorney for health care purposes. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those next week. But here's an interesting stat to me. 10 percent of adults (coughs) don't have an attorney prepare any part of an estate plan, or that they don't have one do that, is because they don't want to think about dying. They just don't want to think about death, the afterlife, or being incapacitated. They just don't want to deal with those things. And then 19 percent of adults say they don't have an estate plan because they don't know who to talk to about creating one. And you know, and if I wasn't in this line of work, Megan would probably attest to you about this, I'd probably fall into that 19%. There's a lot of things I don't do sometimes because I just don't know. Who am I supposed to talk to? Where do I go? How do I do it? And so I want to work through some questions. I, I, I try to approach these type of Um, lessons or presentations is how would I probably learn the most from it and for me I'm a big question asker. Why does it work like that? What is this? And so that's how I've kind of laid out this presentation and and before we get to those questions we've got to figure out what is your estate? What's in your estate? And some of you are thinking well I don't think I have one. Yes you do have one And defining it is going to be the most straightforward, the most important part of this process because it's hard to figure out what to put in your will or what to leave people if you don't know what you have. I've done some wills for some people that were giving away things that actually weren't theirs. And then vice versa, I've done some wills for some people that had no clue what they had. There are some people that live so frugal, and when you actually look at their net worth, they've got millions of dollars. And maybe you're thinking, I hope I'm one of those people. But there are situations like that. So here's the formula. How you figure out your net worth is you take your assets, and then you take your liabilities, and you minus the liabilities from the assets, and that gets you at your net worth. And I actually, there's there's different things that I offer that I'll help with, but if, if you want the complete plan, what I do is I actually have sheets where we'll write down and we'll figure out all of your assets. And then we'll work through and we'll figure out all of your liabilities. And we're going to talk about some different types of liabilities here in, a, here in a second. And then we figure out what is your net worth? How much are you actually worth? What all do you have that is your personal and real property. Well here's some examples of some of your assets. Annuities, cars, cash, certificates of deposit, insurance, investments, personal property, real estate, rental income, retirement funds, savings and checking accounts, stock certificates, structured settlements such as lottery winnings or lawsuit settlements. All of those things we would combine and we'd figure all those out and we'd add them up and we'd figure out that those would be your total amounts of assets. You might be surprised sometimes that that, that you have quite a bit more. Then we would look at your liabilities, all of your bills and debts, if you have alimony payments, your automobile payments, uh, child support payments, credit card balances, future debt that you might be incurring in the future, student loans, for me that's quite a bit right now, insurance premiums, mortgages, personal loans, taxes, and so we add all of those up and then we get what your net worth is. And, and, and once we can figure that out, it makes it a little bit easier to see what's the best way for you to go. Is it, is it a trust? Is it a couple trusts? Is it just a simple will? And you might be thinking, well, what is a will? I mean, I've heard the word thrown around. I've heard you talk about it some. I've heard you explain some guys in the Bible. But, but, but what exactly is a will? A will is a legal document in which you identify the people or institutions that should receive money and property from your estate after your death. It also, and and listen to this, especially if you have minor kids, it also serves to appoint guardianship of children or adults who are your legal responsibility and designate to manage your estate after you die. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second. To me, this is very, very important, and I can guarantee you, the moment Megan and I have a child, we will always have some sort of will listing who that child will go to if something happens to us. There is a big misconception that Well, whoever claims, like my child, if I was to die or me and my spouse were to die at the same time, whoever claims that child, whether it be grandparents or one of my sisters or brother-in-laws, they would just get to raise the child. It doesn't work like that. When you die without a will, you are said to have died intestate. So your estate and everything in your estate now becomes the job of the state, the state of Georgia in your case here, to figure that out. So all of a sudden, an opportunity you had while you were living to decide where your kids went now becomes the state's job. And the hope would be, in a lot of circumstances, that they would look at close relatives or close friends or people from church to start that process. But that might not always be the case. Or maybe it's the case and you don't want it to be the case. You don't want your sister to be the one raising your kids. And I'm not saying that as a joke. I know that sometimes we have strained relationships with siblings. Maybe your sisters had drug issues or money issues and you don't want her getting to live off of the state, getting money for your kids and her using those on a vice rather than taking care of your kids. So I really hope if for nothing else those that have minor children really think about the importance because that, to me, is a really, really big deal. I did a will a couple weeks ago for a young couple, probably not much older than me and Megan. They have two children under the age of five, and we, we got to the clause about the children. They have, like, 17 people. I mean, I'm not kidding. If, if they were to die, they want her, her parents to, to be in charge, but if, if they're not able to, if they're dead, they have thought of, I mean, there is no way... Someone's not going to be alive in this scenario. That is that important to them. And I thought that was pretty cool because what that told me is those are two parents that love those kids very dearly and they are very worried about their well-being, whether they're here or not. So that's something I hope you will really think about and consider. So, so, so the next question is, okay, we've established what a will is. What does it do? A will spells out your instructions and wishes for what you want done with the property that you leave. You know, that's when you hear sometimes about somebody leaves it in their will that they want their ashes dumped in a a river or on a baseball field or something. You get to leave out those instructions as to how you want things done. So another question um, that I hear quite a bit is, well, can't I just do it myself? You know, I just, maybe you've had a bad experience with an attorney, maybe you just have never been to one and you've just heard they're so expensive so you don't really want to, to, to try to spend the money or think about that. I'll, I'll say this on this on this issue. Using a will form from, say, a grocery store or the Internet can be very dangerous. Unless you know the laws of Georgia and know how the language of a document like a will matches up to the laws of Georgia, you could have false sense of security about what will happen after you die. You might think, I've got this all figured out, I've got a will, I'm good to go, and then you're dead and your family finds out, nope, they didn't abide by the laws of Georgia. For example, Georgia has very specific laws as to how a will must be witnessed to be legal and enforceable, how a will can be revoked and amended, and the effect of subsequent marriage or divorce, births, and adoptions. That's just to name a few things. And so that's another thing to think about. If you're on a second or third marriage, if you were just to die without a will, there's actually been scenarios sometimes where an ex-spouse has inherited what you left behind. And so having a will makes sure you know exactly what's going to happen. The next question I get a lot of times is, where do I need to do my will? What state do I need to do it in? Does that matter? It does matter. Because the state that you're domiciled in, and you figure out domicile by where you're a resident with an intent to stay, they have the authority over your will. So let's say I'm living in Georgia at the time, but I've got family in Kansas, and I'm out in Kansas visiting and say, you know what, I'm going to just do my will here in Kansas, and I write it up, I, I you know, do it in Kansas, I, I put it as a Kansas will, and then I die. And then Megan goes to the courthouse and tries to get everything figured out. I say, well, But he didn't have a Kansas driver's license? He doesn't have any property, his vehicles are, you know, registered in Georgia. All of a sudden, I don't have a valid will. So you need to have your will done and executed in the state where you are a resident. The court in that state where the property is located is who will oversee the transition of ownership. So you live how far from Florida? Fifteen miles so the next question I get a lot of times is, well, what about if I have property in other states? And that's a good question. So if you're living in Georgia, you're a resident of Georgia, but you say, let's say you have a, a beach house in Panama City, you need to have a Florida will as well, or go and meet with a Florida attorney, because that's all going to be taken care of by the courts in Florida. Now, more than likely, Accidentally mentioning that Florida house in a Georgia will isn't going to revoke the Georgia will, but this is another mistake that's made sometimes when we try to do things on our own and we don't know exactly how to do it. But you would more than likely, what I instruct people when they have stuff in another state, I say you need to contact an attorney in that state and ask them exactly how you need to do it. And so you'll meet some people sometimes that have four different wills, one for Georgia, one for Florida, one for Tennessee, and that's just to cover all the property in those different places. There's other ways that if you have, say, some land in another state, and that's all you have there, there's some other kind of cost-effective ways, say, survivorship deeds and things like that, but we'll talk about those a little bit more next week. So the next question we get quite a bit is, what does my will need? What goes into a will? Well, you're going to need some key components. One is beneficiaries. Beneficiaries are going to be the individuals or institutions who will s- receive the property. And I'm sure uh, the elders here in Jason would have no problem with you leaving everything to the cornerstone Church of Christ when you die. But, but that happens quite a bit. Um, there's a church in Cordial, Oklahoma, and, and not long after we moved here, they called us and asked us. We may have been here two months. One of my buddies is a, a minister out there, and he was leaving for a church in Texas, and they called and asked us and wanted us to come uh, go be there. Well, we had just moved here, so we didn't even really entertain it, but I knew it was a church of about 80 people, and they were offering quite a bit of money for a church of 80 people. And so I just asked the guy that called me, I'm just curious, I mean, is contribution that good? Or He said, well, funny thing is, is, we had this older gentleman a few years ago that always told us, when I die, I'm leaving everything to you guys. When I die, I'm leaving everything to you guys. And he said, the guy drove like a 1965 pickup. His house was really small. He wore old clothes. Well, when he died, and his wills and estate attorney contacted us, we received a $40 million check. And so that church is sitting pretty well today. And on top of that, that guy had a lot of oil and gas royalties, and they still don't know how much they're going to get on top of that $40 million. So I think they're set for a couple years. But, but you don't just have to leave it. And I know that doesn't quite cover Jason's salary, but it's, 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 it's a start. But my point in that is you don't just have to leave it to an individual. If you have a society you really like, a cancer society or or some kind of nonprofit work and you want to leave money to them, you, you can divide it up. You can leave some stuff to your kids and leave some stuff to a church or some type of nonprofit organization. The the other things that you'll have in there is you have to have an executor. You have to have the individual who's going to handle the property and execute your will after you die. One thing to think about in this a lot of times is you want someone that's trustworthy, you want someone that's honest, you want someone that is going to be reliable, going to be hardworking. It's not always easy to execute a will because if you divvied up some percentages in what people are getting, say the oldest child gets a little bit more because they've been taking care of you in old age and the younger siblings haven't been coming to see you, there might be some will contestion, possibly. And so it's, it's important to get an executor that's not going to just back down and be bullied. Um, a lot of times, most people will just have their spouse um, or then the oldest child, sometimes a nephew, sometimes if you don't have a spouse or have kids, a, a best friend. But, but somebody that you can count on, someone that you know, We'll take care of this once you're gone. And then you're going to have a bunch of clauses in there, the clause on taxes, how you want taxes to be paid, a survival clause, guardianship clause that we talked about earlier, giving clause, and the giving clauses are what you give to people. And these can be very, very broad, or they can be very, very specific. A lot of times, a very simple will, someone just says, you know, I, I die, I want my whole estate to go to my wife. If she doesn't survive me... I want it divided three ways among my three children. I've done, we just did one recently, it was a 17-page will, and this guy, I think, willed out everything to the lint in his jeans. He was making sure everybody, uh, he knew where every gun was going, he knew where every, I mean, everything he had willed it out. And that can get a little exhausting, but it's his will. He can do what he wants to. Um, You're going to have a residue clause in there, and this is to... (coughs) Cover the leftovers. Sometimes you had some stuff. If you didn't figure out your net worth in the beginning, you might have had some extra assets, some extra money that you didn't know about, and then you cover that. A lot of times that's just left to one of the children or a spouse or something like that. Um, Appointment clauses, fiduciary powers clause, and then ending clauses. And the ending clauses always need to have your signature and your witnesses. So as we get kind of towards the end, and I want to open it up for some questions, I want to go over real quick some of the essential elements for a will to be valid in Georgia. Uh, the first one is it has to be in written form. Now, we've all seen the old westerns where the guy's in a big gunfight, and he's about to die, and he takes out a little piece of paper and writes what he wants to happen. That, it doesn't work like that. Um, It has to be in written form, and there's going to be some other (coughs) um, requirements here in a second, but oral wills are not recognized by Georgia courts, and and holographic wills, which would be the old cowboy getting shot in a gunfight and just writing on a piece of paper, that's considered a holographic will. Those are not recognized by Georgia's courts. Um, The second thing you have to have is you have to have your name. Now, this seems pretty basic, but you would be surprised how many stories clerks of courts have that somebody died, their executor comes in and brings the will, and it never says the person's name on it. It seems simple, but this is another common mistake you see sometimes when someone doesn't go to an attorney or have someone that knows what they're doing help them with this. The third thing you have to be is of sound mind. You have to be competent. Luckily, men, your wives, don't get to be the test of whether you're competent or not. But the competency test here is that you know what you're doing. You understand what it is that you're signing when you sign that will, that you understand you're giving these things to this person, that you're nominating this person to be your executor, that you fully understand the bounty of of what you own. The next thing is there has to be a clear statement and intention to transfer property. This is uh, a pretty big thing that there's not a point in having a will unless you give some instruction as to what to have happen. You know, just having a will to just have your name on it and not telling what needs to happen really does not serve a point. Um, and then it has to be signed voluntarily. and. The purpose for this is it has to, it's your last will and testament. It's not your kids urging you to get what they want when you die last will and testament. You have to be the one that signs this under your own voluntary will. This is what you want to have happen. This isn't what you're just necessarily doing because you feel like you have to or you've been pressured or there's in due influence, but this is what, you want. Then, it needs to be witnessed properly. And in Georgia, that means two competent adults have to watch you sign your name. They have to watch you read through it. They have to watch the attorney have you give an oath and say, yes, this is my name. Yes, I've read through this. Yes, I understand what I'm doing. Yes, I'm competent. And they sign as witnesses that this person knew what they were doing. Now, a common question a lot of times is can one of the witnesses be someone that is getting something out of the will? For example, let's say Jason is leaving all of his stuff to me and Bethany. We're going to divide it up, 50-50. And so Jason's ready to sign this will, and he's got Kendall there, but no one else is around but me, and so me and Kendall witness it. I have just crossed my name out of Jason's will. It was done properly because he had two witnesses. But if you witness a will in which you're a beneficiary, you do not receive anything from that will. Now, I don't understand in most states, like in Kansas, the other state that, that I've passed the bar in, in Kansas, if, if I was to witness it, it's just a void will. It just it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't understand. I guess I can't think of a situation. I really can't. I've, I've sat for hours and tried to figure out what would be a situation in which to have someone witness your will that you're leaving something to and the only even maybe possible scenario i could think of is say say jason and <coughs> bethany are, are there and let's say jackson and miles are older they haven't done a will yet and you've got jackson and bethany are the only two there jason's leaving his entire estate to bethany But then if she was to die, to Jackson and to um, Miles. And so in that scenario, if if he's clearly about to die and she's in pretty good health, and the only two people there are Bethany and Jackson, it makes sense maybe to let Jackson sign it because he wasn't going to technically receive anything at that moment. And then it can just make sure to be cleared up in Bethany's will that just Jackson or Miles don't need to sign anything. I don't think that you'd ever really probably be in a situation like that. The the safest thing I say is if you're giving that person something, they don't need to be a witness. Um, And then the last thing I have on there is self-proving. And if you did a will several years ago, there's a chance that your will is not self-proving. I know there was a guy in our town that did, I think about, everybody's will in Donaldsonville, but he was old school and he didn't do self-proving wills. So here's what a self-proving will is. A self-proving will is that at the end of your will document, what I do is I do a self-proving page, which means both witnesses sign that they saw you sign this, and that they saw you understand and comprehend what you were doing. So now they're not just signing as a witness, now they're taking an oath before a notary, and that is getting notarized. So that is just like you see in the movies, you raise your right hand, you swear the truth, the whole truth, so help you God. That's basically what doing that before a notary is. And so what that means is, if, if Jason has a will, he gets the two witnesses to sign, then they have a self-proving document at the back. When he dies, and his executor brings me his will, and I see that it's self-proving, when I go to probate it with the court, that's all we need. With the old school version of not having a self-proving document, I would have to then go locate his two witnesses and then have them sign an affidavit that said they saw him sign it. That creates a lot of work. That can create a lot of time. And what happens sometimes? The witnesses might have already died. And that doesn't necessarily mean the will can't be probated, but it can definitely prolong the process. So then a big question sometimes is, what do I do with my will? I've got it executed. I came and saw the attorney. I'm just going to go put it in my safety deposit box. The problem with that is, Who gets into your safety deposit box? You. And once you die, maybe your spouse can, but typically no one else is going to be able to get into it. The most common mistake I see have happen, and I've got this up here, is someone puts it in their safety deposit box because they say, you know what? My son Brian, he has power of attorney over me. He can go into my safety deposit box. But do you know what happens to a power of attorney when you die? It dies, too. So when Brian goes to the bank and says, well, I've got my dad's power of attorney, they say, yeah, that died the moment he died, and now your will is sitting in a safety deposit box, and nobody can get it to it. So I suggest a lot of times, if if your executor is your oldest son, give it to him. Because once you die, it does not matter. You know where it is. Let the executor hold on to it, or make sure the executor knows where it is. I suggest a lot of times putting it somewhere that if you have like a fireproof vase or something, or, uh, not vase, what's the word I'm looking for, safe, to, to, to put under your bed or something, put it in there. Um, because if it gets burned up or something, it gets void. So So take care of it because it has to be the original document. I'll make a copy when someone has a will done, but very rarely is the court going to accept my copy. There might be special circumstances, but typically they're going to say tough luck. So I really want to close out by doing an exercise with you real quick. And then I know we're, we started a little late, so we're right about 8 o'clock. And I don't want to keep you too late past. But I just, and we can finish up with some of this next week. But I want to real quick, as quick as I can, walk you through four very quick scenarios. And, and, and there's scenarios of clients that I've had, and I want you to ask yourself, what client would you want your family to be when you die? The first client is client A. Client A had talked to her husband time and time again about getting a will, and he said, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I promise I'll get to it. And then unexpectedly, at 50, he has a heart attack and dies. Never had a will. So widow, like we talked about earlier, trying to go through the, the five stages of grief, comes into my office, find out he doesn't have a will. So what we've got to do is we've got to do a thing called letters of administration. So we've got to petition the court to let her become the executor of her husband's estate. And so what happens is, is anything that has his name on it, any cars, any houses, she can't make decisions because it's not just her name on it so until we get this letters of administration signed off by the the courts she can't do anything with these things she can't sell cars she can't cash in on life insurance checks she can't do any of this stuff so when you do a letters of administration you've got to publish it in the paper for four weeks I don't know about in Thomas County but in Donaldsonville it's eighty dollars a week. You publish something, so right off the bat, before she's even um, paid me or anything like that, she's looking at about three, four hundred dollars. It, it can depend on how many words are in there, just on newspaper fees. Then you've got to do another published article in the paper to give notice to creditors, another three to four hundred dollars, and all of a sudden. Her husband's died, it's eight weeks later, and the courts haven't even gotten to do anything because of statutory requirements that have to go in the newspaper. Then if you're lucky, in our case we weren't real lucky, the judge was really busy, the judge did not get to her case for another two or three weeks to swear her in as the executor. So it's been three months at this point since her husband's died and she has not been able to do anything. Do you want your family to be client A? Client A who, to probate a will and get all of that figured out, typically costs about $650. That's attorney's fees, that's filing fees, that's copies fees, that's very, very cheap. We're not done with client A stuff. And just a newspaper fee, she's paid over 1000 Just to me, she's paid about 600 And in filing fees and all, she's paid about $600. So she's at over $2,000, and we're not done with her. Then you've got client B, an older gentleman that came into my office a few weeks ago, and he tells me, I want to just change my will. I had a will done several years ago. I'm I'm leaving things to to my two sons. That's all I've got to leave stuff to. I was leaving my house to both of them in there too, but now I just want to leave it to the older son, Because he's been taking care of me. I said, okay. Well, I start looking at his old will, and I realize the guys he's calling his sons don't have the same last name as him. So I said, are these stepsons? He said, yes. I said, did did your wife die? He said, yes. I said, did she have a will? He said, no. I said, was she on the deed after you had already owned the property, and then you put her on the deed? He said, yes. I said, well, this isn't your house. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, when your wife died, she died intestate. So your house that you had for 30 years before you ever met your wife is now owned in percentages by your stepsons as well, and you can't deed that. You can deed your percentage in the house, but that son that you don't want to have any tie to the house has about a 15 to 20% share in that house. It's very important that you talk to people that know what they're doing with these things. Then there's, there's client C. Client C, her husband had a will. He had everything laid out. He died on a Saturday. She came to my office with her daughter on a Wednesday. We got all of the paperwork. We had it filed by Friday. By Monday, she was sworn in as the executor of her husband's uh, estate. She had everything figured out with the bank's with her land, with her house. And by that following Thursday, everything was just in her name. All insurance had been paid out. And so in about two weeks, everything was taken care of. So you got Client A, who months upon months after her husband's death is still trying to get things figured out. But then Client C has it all figured out in around two weeks, just because her husband went into attorney's office, paid a couple hundred dollars, Got a will figured out, and it cost client C $600. While client A is still piling up bills in this. Then you've got client D. Client D put off doing a will, put off doing a will, put off doing a will. Finally said, I can't do it any longer. Signed his will at 9.30 on a Saturday morning. Died at 11.45 that night. Helped his family out tons by finally saying, you know what, I can't put this off any longer. And I'm going to tell you next week about someone I just thought about that I got to call about today, and we'll call them client E next week, and you don't want to be client E. We'll talk (laughs) about client E next week. But I want to close with this. There's a thing called a codicil, and a codicil is a, a rather inexpensive way that you decide somewhere down the line you know what, I need to make a change to my will and I don't want to pay to have a whole new will done but this person has died or I've I've gained a new vehicle or I have a piece of property that I didn't have in the past and so this just allows you to modify or make a change and we just put that at the back of your will. Another thing to think about when we talk about codicils is it is very important that every five years you pull your will out, you look at it and probably you are going to need some updates. You know, my grandparents told us for years, we've got a will, we've got a will. We finally looked at it. They made it in 1958 and my mom and my sister weren't even born. So it's important because once you have a child, for any child born that is not mentioned in a will, your will is now voided. doesn't work because that child can't be left out. now. You can make mention of the child and say we're not leaving this child anything. But just not having a child's name in there at all makes a court say, well, they wouldn't just intentionally leave a child out. So this was not their full competency to make this uh state. Now there's a lot of wills that says, Yes, I acknowledge Stephen as my child, and I'm not leaving him a thing. Now there's probably a lot deeper issues there, but 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 It's important that you acknowledge all of your kids, um, at least that they were alive, even if you're not meaning to leave them anything. So here's just a last few points on wills. I mentioned holographic wills. They're not recognized in Georgia, and that's a handwritten will that is signed by the testator but not witnessed by anyone. Then you have what's called a joint will, and I don't know why, but this is recognized in Georgia. And this is one one legal document that is for any two people, typically spouses, is signed as one will. So this would be like me and Megan doing one will. We'll write out our will. This is what's going to happen with the kids. This is what's going to happen with this. But then the problem with the joint will is Megan dies. Well, guess what I can't do? I can't change anything because it was the last will of both of us. and. Me changing it changes the will, and her dying locks that will in for good. So let's say she dies rather young. I try to remarry one day, or I do remarry one day. I can't leave anything to that spouse. I can't leave anything to kids from that marriage because I'm locked into this will. So that's, I really, really highly speak against joint wills. I do not understand why someone would do one of those. Another thing people try to do, a video will, where except the video camera, you say what you want to have happen. If you've learned anything tonight, you know that that's not going to fly and that's not recognized in Georgia. And then one last important thing, any will that you make voids any and all other wills. So if you were to make a will tonight and you would made a will two weeks ago, the will that you made tonight voids the past wills. Well, I appreciate you guys having me here. Do we have any questions? Yeah, yeah. And th- and that's the other thing that I wanted to say. I I uh, <coughs> will be around here for a while. I know Jason's got an impact meeting. So I Megan and I will be up here. I've got some questionnaires that I'm going to have Jason pass out, or you can come up here and pick and just put your information down and all. I, I don't usually just give a general quote for things because things, it can be different for any given person. I will tell you this, that uh, the ABA of Georgia says that throughout Georgia, probably the most common medium price throughout the state that people do a will for is about $300. I typically do a will for about $175. So I I try to stay on the low end, um, and if it's very, very basic, I might even do it for $150. Especially for you guys attending tonight. Um, <clears throat> but we'll do more extensive stuff. We'll talk about trust and stuff next week. Those get to be a little bit more. But I'll also, what I'll do sometimes is I'll, I'll do a two for one for, or not quite a two for one, maybe two for one and a half for if both spouses want to do a will. But I'll also, I've started doing this more recently, and people like this. Like I talked about the estate planning aspect, going through your assets with you. Going through your liabilities with you, helping you figure out what exactly your net worth is, and sometimes we'll just charge an extra twenty-five or thirty dollars for that um, to, to help with that. So, if if you have any questions, maybe you've already done a will but you have some questions about it, maybe you've never even thought about a will, and uh, I've got some cards here. You can call me, you can email me. I was going to say too, if if you don't have anything, you have no will in place, and, and tonight kind of scared you a little bit. I mean, I scare myself sometimes when I talk about this and say, I really got to get on this. I, I need to do this right away. And I, I guarantee you, like if Megan has a child on a, a Saturday, we will be like executing a will Sunday morning because that, that's very important to me to know what's going to happen with my kids. But if, if you want something next week, I've got the cards here. If you were to email me and you just wanted a very basic will, I would bring you one next week with your name and everything that you gave me, and we could execute you one next week. Um, and we might even knock $50 off for that or something. We'll, we'll talk about that. But thank you, Jason. Thank you, Cornerstone Church of Christ. I'll be up here. Um, hopefully it didn't bore you guys too much. And if you have any questions, please um, come and get a card, and we'll help you in any way we can.